Well, today, of course, is Palm Sunday, and uh, today we celebrate the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. And in this passage of Scripture, in John chapter 12, is the events surrounding this very wonderful moment. Uh, This is really the, the kickoff to what we call Passion Week or Holy Week. It is in this week that Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. It is this week that he meets with his disciples in the upper room. It's in this week that, at the end of this week, he rises from the grave, which we'll celebrate next Sunday. But in John chapter number 12, we see some different responses to what was happening. In fact, we see some different expressions of worship. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Expressions of worship. Now let me start by asking this very simple question this morning, and that is this, who or what do you worship? Who or what do you worship? When does sports as entertainment become sports as idolatry? Well, consider this banner seen at Lambeau Field in 1996, the season the Green Bay Packers won the Super Bowl in New Orleans And their quarterback, Brett Favre, was named the MVP. Now, I'm not just picking on the Packers this morning, though I wouldn't mind. Um, I'm picking on the spirit of worship, even in professional and even college sports. Listen to what this banner had to say. And this is on the verge of blasphemy. But this is what was printed on this banner. It says, Our Favre, who art in Lambeau, hallowed be thine arm. The bowl will come, it will be won, in New Orleans as it is in Lambeau. Give us this Sunday our weekly win. And give us many touchdown passes, but do not let others pass against us. Lead us not into frustration, but deliver us to Bourbon Street. For thine is the MVP, the best of the NFL, and the glory of the cheeseheads. Now and forever, go get them. A tad humorous, but mostly blasphemous. You see, apparently some fans recognize their team's support for what it truly is, worship. So I ask this question once again. Who or what? Do you worship? Perhaps it would be a good idea if we defined what this word worship really is all about. So according to Webster, worship is, it means to adore, to to pay divine honors to, to reverence with supreme respect and veneration, to respect, to honor, to treat with civil reverence, and to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission as a lover. Well, if you look at the fan base of some teams, it really can be defined as worship. If we, can, if we look at other segments of society and what they worship, it is appalling. A.W. Tozer defined worship this way. He said, what is worship? Worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe 
and astonished wonder and overpowering love in the presence of that most ancient mystery, that majesty with philosophers call the first cause, but which we call our Father which art in heaven. One of my favorite definitions of worship was written by Stuart Hine. And it's found in the great hymn, How Great Thou Art. Uh, go find a hymnal, grab a hymnal real quick, and let's look at this song together. Because this is a great definition of, uh, of worship. A ex- great expression of worship. How Great Thou Art, and it's going to be on page number 365. Here he says, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, and now that we're living in Oklahoma, I hear the rolling thunder a little more than I ever have in the past. But I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul and my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. How great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. And then let's look at this third verse here. And there's, we, we, could, we could go through each one of these verses, but this third one's really good too. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I, I scarce can take it in. That means I, I can't really wrap my mind around why he would do that. I scarce can take it in that, that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And then, and then this writer says, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. That's true worship. You know, worship is an important part of the Christian life. It's, it's really the intimacy that we need with Christ. In John chapter 12, we find three different expressions of worship that surrounded this First, this very first Palm Sunday. And so I want to look at these different expressions with you this, this morning. And as we do this, I'd like you to ask the question of your own self. Which one do I display in my own life? Which expression of worship fits me? And so let's look at these this morning. Uh, number one, I want you to see, number one, the multitude expressed a casual worship of Christ. A casual worship of Christ. So the multitude expressed a a casual worship of Christ. Look again in verse number uh, 12 here in John chapter 12. It says, On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they, they took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. This is the a very triumphant entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. This was one of the most exciting events in his public ministry. And as the Bible records that much people were there and part of the celebration. Uh, this was kind of an exciting day. And so people were coming and out of the woodwork to uh, worship this, this man riding upon a donkey. Uh, this was an exciting day and... Uh, I think next Sunday is going to be an exciting day, don't you think? And so a lot of people usually come to church on exciting days. 
These are the what I have been referring to as the C and E Christians, the Christmas and Easter Christians, the ones that come to church when it's popular, when it's the social norm to do, uh, when everyone and who, who's anyone is going to church, that's when they'll go to church. And that's what these people were here in John chapter 12, verse 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they showed up and they were part of the worship service. They go to church when it's popular. They worship God when it's convenient. And it's evident to me that these folks expressed a, a real casual worship of Christ. Say, how, how could you say that? I mean, their hearts were sincere. Look what they were doing. They were into this worship. Well, their, their, their worship was indeed merely casual because, first of all, they had false expectations. They had false expectations. You see, for years, the Jews were under Roman oppression. And they thought that Jesus finally would be the answer to their bondage. They thought that he would uh, deliver them from this political uh, bondage that they were experiencing. They were looking to Christ to grant political freedom when he came to provide something far greater and that which was deliverance from the spiritual bondage of sin. That's really why he came. But people thought, oh, he's coming to, you know, give us political freedom from the Romans. We're so glad he's here. Well, their expectations were false. Romans 6 talks about how he came to deliver us from the bondage of sin. And I'm so thankful that he did. Romans 6 and verse number 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. That's the bondage we all want to be under, is under the bondage of grace, not under the bondage of sin or under the law. Verse number 18, it says, Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. And verse 22 of Romans chapter 6 says, But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. You see, when Jesus came, he didn't come to give us, give them what they wanted. He came to give them what they needed, which was forgiveness of sin. And that's why Jesus said in Luke chapter 19 and verse number 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to give us what we needed most, and that was forgiveness of sins. You know, political freedom is wonderful, and I'm thankful for the freedom we have here in America. And, and yes, we experience freedom. We're under some bondage. A lot of people are under the bondage of materialism, and they serve and worship that. Uh, but more important than political freedom and uh, freedom as a country is a spiritual freedom from sin. Now, if you're here this morning and you've never been set free from the bondage of your sin, may I introduce you to Jesus, who is the only one that can offer you forgiveness of sin. You see, that's why he died on the cross a few days after this Palm Sunday. That's why he became our sacrifice to forgive you of your sins. Well, these people, they worship Christ casually because they had false expectation. They didn't really understand why he was there. Well, their false expectations led to a failing excitement, 
of failing excitement. <coughs> Excuse me. What began in excitement and celebration unfortunately ended in a death wish. What happened here in John chapter 12 with cheering and praising ended in John chapter 18 with the desire to release the robber Barabbas instead of Jesus. It was these people in the crowd who were saying, crucify him, crucify him, just a few days later. This happened on Sunday. Jesus was crucified on Wednesday morning. Oh, what a change. There was an old, uh, oh, I don't remember the uh, clothing brand, but uh, what a difference a suit makes um, that somebody would come into this, this, this men's warehouse. I don't know if it was a men's warehouse or CNR or something like that. They'd come in there and, and, and the whole tagline was, do you remember that CNR? Some of you? What's that? Anthony's? Maybe that's the one. But you go in there, and what a difference a suit makes. And the guy comes out looking all sharp. But what a difference three days makes for these people. They were all excited. They were part of the worship service because, hey, that's the end thing to do. Hey, my buddy's going. Sure, I'll go too. And then it fizzles out. And now all of a sudden they're crying, crucify him, crucify him. How sad. Well, I believe it's because they had false expectations when when, when Jesus didn't give them what they wanted, they turned on him. And they turned their back. Uh, do you have casual worship of Christ? Are you a Christian just because it's the popular thing to do? It's the socially acceptable thing to do? Maybe in your family, it's, hey, we're a Christian family, so I guess I'm a Christian too. And then when it doesn't quite work out the way you hoped it would, you turn your back on the Lord. That's exactly what happened with this group of people. This multitude, they had a casual worship of Christ. Can I ask this question? Are you worshiping God so that He will do something for you? Or are you worshiping because He already has? You see, these people were worshiping because they were hoping that he would do something for them, that he would give them freedom from the Romans. Are you worshiping so that he will do something for you? Secondly, I'd like you to see not only the multitude who displayed and expressed a casual form of worship, but I'd like you to see, number two, the men who expressed a conditional worship of Christ. And for this, we'll jump down to verse number 34, John, John 12, 34. <clears throat> the people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever, and how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Well, then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While you have the light, believe in the light that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed, and he did hide himself from them. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. There were many who chose not to believe. But then jump down to verse 42. 
Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, also many believed on him. Well, praise the Lord. There were many of these chief rulers that were part of the uh, Jewish religion, and, and they believed on Jesus Christ. And so that's great news, right? Well, the verse goes on. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. The men expressed a conditional worship of Christ. I'll worship you, Lord, so long as it doesn't make my life inconvenient. So long as my life remains comfortable, I'll worship you. Oh, I believe there's a lot of Christians like that today that go to church as long as it makes them feel good. As long as they have their ears tickled. You know, <clears throat> I realize, and, and I don't want to cast judgment on these men too much, because here, here's the deal. Had they confessed Christ, they would have probably lost their job. Now, I'm not in a position where if I confess Christ, I'll lose my job. In fact, if I don't confess Christ, then maybe I'll lose my job. <laughs> So I'm quite the opposite situation that they're in. It's, a, it's good for me to become a Christian and to be a Christian and to worship the Lord. But for them to do that would have cost them their job. So before I get to uh, look down at my nose on them, uh, it's easy for me to say. But, but they would have lost their job had they confessed Christ. These are people who uh, no doubt had some type of employment in, uh, in their manner of Life, no doubt their social status was, uh, was part of it. And so we see, first of all, with these guys, there was a social conflict. There was a social conflict. If they would have uh, confessed Christ, they would have lost their reputation uh, in, their, in their surrounding. I mean, their family perhaps would have disowned them. Uh, their friends would have disowned them. They would have certainly lost all position, all type of influence. It would, it would have been a difficult thing. And, and yet, as I think about that, I think about others who have not just lost their jobs, but many who lost their lives because they confessed Christ. Amen. Listen to a couple examples. Polycarp, he was the venerable bishop of Smyrna. And he was hearing that persons were seeking for him, and he escaped was, but was discovered by a child. After feasting the guards who apprehended him, he desired an hour in prayer, which being allowed, he prayed with such fervency that his guards repented that they had been instrumental in taking him. He was, however, carried before the proconsul, condemned and burnt in the marketplace. The proconsul then urged him, saying, Swear, and I will release thee. Reproach Christ. Polycarp's answer is famous. And he said this, 80 and 6 years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? Well, at the stake to which he was only tied but not nailed as usual, he assured them that he would stand immovable, and the flames on their kindling encircled his body like an ark without touching him. And the executioner, on seeing this, was ordered to pierce him with the sword, 
And so great a quantity of blood flowed out as extinguished the fire. So Polycarp was martyred for the faith. In Albania, 1973, not too long ago, the bishop of Durazio was locked into a round iron cage the size of his body. The inner wall had spikes that pressed into his flesh. The cage was then rolled through the streets on its side until he died from the pain and loss of blood. Franco Gigini, uh, he was an abbot of Merzidia, was kept in a 9 by 9 concrete cell for 68 days. Several times pieces of wood were driven under his fingernails. And toward the end of his life, he was given electrical shocks. Then he was shot. And as he went to the place of his execution, he encouraged other prisoners to stay strong in their faith. So talk about a social conflict. These guys would have lost their jobs, perhaps their social standing. But the ones we just mentioned lost their lives for the faith. I would say that These martyrs had true worship for the Lord. It was not conditional like these men had. And when the social conflicts came, they said, I'm going to stand firm on who my God is, and I'm going to not deny Him. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, we we talked about standing on the promises of God. There's some amazing promises, aren't there? Some wonderful promises to latch on to and to build your life upon. This is one of those promises that I don't love as much. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I like the promises of God. This one, not, not as much. I don't really love persecution. I don't really love experiencing trials because of my faith. And yet, we need to be willing to suffer. Look, Jesus never promised that if you followed him, it was going to be a life of ease. In fact, he promised quite the opposite, didn't he? So why is Christians in our culture today surprised when we go through difficulty? And we leave churches because it's too difficult. Why is it? Well, there's a social conflict sometimes. And it's because our our worship for the Lord is conditional. But unfortunately, this social conflict with these men led to a very sad commentary. In verse number 43, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. You see, that's how God looked at it. I realize that we can't see God. He's not physical. And we can see people. They're physical. And it's easy to try to please people versus pleasing God because it's so immediate. But pleasing God is the most important. And when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it is going to be indeed that, the judgment seat of Christ, not the judgment seat of those around me. And at that point, it's not going to matter where we, uh, whether people praised us or not. It's going to matter whether God praises us or not. You see, this type of worship, this conditional worship that these men experienced, says, I will worship God as long as it doesn't affect me. 
as long as I can keep my life the same way as it always has been. And I'm just adding Jesus to my portfolio. I'm just kind of, I'm going to add that to my Facebook profile, Christian. But it's not going to affect any other part of me. Oh, no, no, no. You see, this type of worship says, I will worship God as long as it's comfortable. But can I remind us of the words of our dear Savior? Who said in Matthew chapter 16, he said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross. Follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profit if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? God didn't, Jesus didn't say, look, follow me and I'm going to make you popular. Follow me and I'm going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Now, he'll make us wise, but he'll make us spiritually healthy and spiritually wealthy. But not what the world thinks. Friend, the Bible clearly states that when Jesus Christ becomes our Savior, changes are going to be made. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul said it this way, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Come as you are, but you should not leave as you came. And so we see that the multitude expressed a casual worship, and the men expressed a conditional worship of Christ. But thirdly and finally this morning, I want to show you something that took place the day before Palm Sunday. I'd like to show you, thirdly, that Mary expressed a committed worship of Christ. And this is going to be the very beginning of John chapter 12. So look with me in verse number, uh, verse number 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There made him a supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. And, and by the way, this is right after Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the, from the grave, if you remember that, in John chapter 11, just the chapter before. So Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him, was kind of a pretty miracle moment. To, it was probably was surreal seeing him sit at that table like, hey, weren't you just dead? And now you're sitting eating a hamburger with me. Isn't this great? Um, but verse number three, here we see Mary. Then Mary, then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. What a beautiful display of worship in that moment. Quite contrast, quite a contrast compared to the multitude who a couple days later would say, crucify him. And even quite another contrast from the, the men who said, you know, I'll, I'll worship you as long as it doesn't cost me my job. This was a lady who was committed in her worship of Christ. I want you to notice a couple things about this expression of worship. First of all, I want you to see her position. Her position. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus. 
So where was she? She was right there at the feet of her Savior. What a great place to be. And by the way, this was not the only time that Mary was at the feet of Christ. Mary was there in Luke chapter number 10, verse number 38. I'm going to flip over there. You don't have to. Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village. A certain woman named Martha received him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. And you remember that story? Martha's in the kitchen, you know, kind of getting the hors d'oeuvres all ready. And, and she's kind of looking out and seeing Mary and kind of going, <laughs> got to do this all myself. I can't believe this, you know. I thought she signed up to help with Easter breakfast, and she's not, you know. She's over there sitting, listening to Jesus. I can't believe this. So she finally had enough and said, hey, Jesus, you need to tell her to come help me. It's just too much for me to do all by myself. And he said to her, hey, look, she hath chosen the good part. He said, look, you can, it's okay to serve. But there's a time to serve and there's also a time to sit and to listen and to worship. Mary knew what it was like to do that. John 11. You're in John chapter 12. Look, look back in verse number 32 of John chapter 11. Okay. Here we go in verse number 32. When, G, when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet. There it is again. So her favorite place to be was at the feet of her dear Savior. Not telling her what to do, not telling him what to do, but allowing him to teach her. That's a great place for us to be and to spend time at the feet of Christ. Not telling him what to do in our lives, but letting him tell us and to teach us what to do in our lives. So her position, and I want you to see... Also, her present, the present that she gave to Jesus. Verse number three, then Mary, then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. This present that she gave the Lord, it was motivated by what Christ had done for her, for her and who he was and what he was going to do. It was also sacrificial. The Bible says it was very costly. She did, it didn't matter. You know, when you go on down and read, um, you know, Judas, Mr. Wannabe Spiritual here, verse number four, Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This is how sacrificial this gift was. I mean, she was willing to break it and anoint the feet of Christ. Pretty amazing. It was sacrificial. So when it came to worshiping the Lord, it didn't matter what it cost. She was willing to give it. She was willing to pay the price. When it comes to worshiping the Lord, what, how much is too much for you? How much would you say, you know what? Lord, that's just too much. I'm sorry. You're just asking you just cross a line, and I'm not willing to give that. What is that for you? Your life? 
What is it? Mary said, look, I don't care how expensive this is. He deserves it. Because he's God. It was motivated by what Christ had done for her. It was sacrificial. And by the way, this gift, this worship impacted others. Again, the end of verse 3 says this, And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. I'm not sure exactly how this smelled, uh, this spike nard, but, but all of them, all, all those around in that room began to be aware. Of the aroma began to hit their nose and they began to be very aware of this particular act of worship that Mary was giving the Lord. You know, when you have a committed worship, others are going to know about it. It's going to be evident to those around you. It's going to be known and, and noticed. It's going to impact others and perhaps inspire them to give as well. I don't know if any of them thought, any of these disciples that were there in that room, uh, later on in their lives as they were, many of them martyred for the cause of Christ. I don't know if they thought back to the sacrifice of Mary here and thought, you know, this isn't too much to give for my Lord because Mary was willing to give so much. I'm willing to give as well. It impacted others. Mary expressed a committed worship of Christ. Someone wrote this when it comes to committed worship, and I want to share it with you this morning. They said, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back. I won't let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense, and my future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I'm done. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, prom promotions, plotus, or popularity. Look, I don't have to be right. I don't have to be first, tops, recognized, praised, rewarded, or regarded. I now live by presence. Learn by faith, love by patience, uh, live by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions few, but my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice. I will not hesitate in the presence of adversity or, or negotiate at the table of the enemy or ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, back up, let up, or shut up until I've preached up, prayed up, paid up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I must go until he returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he comes, he will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Amen. Where are the Christians who would adopt that mantra? Where are the Christians who today would say, look, I am going to express a committed worship to the Lord. 
He gave it all on the cross for me. All to Him I owe. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Where are the Christians who say, look, it doesn't matter what it costs me. My life is His anyway. It all belongs to Him. I'm willing to give it all back to Him should He desire it. So, what type of worship best describes the way you worship God? Casual? Like based on emotion and, and false expectations and it's the popular thing to do? Or is it conditional? I'll stay worshiping the Lord and faithful as long as it doesn't hurt. As long as it doesn't cost me anything. Or is it committed? I'll worship God no matter how much it affects me, no matter what people think of me, and no matter how much it costs me. He paid it all. All to Him I owe. I surrender all. We're the Christians who will mean that song when they sing it. John chapter 12 is an interesting chapter of the Bible because it highlights three different categories of worship. Which worship would you most identify with? Obviously, we want to have the committed type of worship. What decisions do you need to make this morning in your own Christian life to cause your worship of the Lord to be indeed committed?